Welcome to Explorations of the Heart and Soul, guided meditations by Australian Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So just before we get started on the guided meditation, just like to say a few words, a words about this year. <clears throat> so um, I've invited uh, Reeson Jet to join me in this project uh, of collaboration where we're working towards developing a, a Zen style of guided meditation. As you all know, guided meditations were not part of the Zen practice traditionally, but I think um, there's very much a space for it. And we are gonna be continuing to develop, to develop that this year. Uh, <clears throat> so we're gonna be alternating and uh, so next week, uh, Jed will be leading the guided meditation, then the following week, it'll be me again, and then the week after that will be Reese and so on. Um, so as I was talking about on Sunday in the Dharma talk, one of Buddhism 101, um, <clears throat> Buddhism, <clears throat> Buddhism is a vast field, a vast number of teachings in Buddhism. But um, if we boiled it down to what the, what the kernel of Buddhism was, like the, the, the kind of core of the paradigm of Buddhism, there's, there's four basic principles or teachings. And you should all be familiar with them by now because I, can, I continue to go over them all the time. But they're so central and so important. So the first one is the notion of the word in Sanskrit, dukkha, <clears throat> which gets translated into English as suffering or discontent, unease, that basic sense of maybe just a, a, an anxiety underneath, underneath the surface of things all the time, where we're never quite at home in the world or we're never quite at peace in the world. So dukkha is a very, it's, a, it's, it's pervasive uh, and, it, and includes many different aspects of human existence and the existence of other beings as well, animals. And so that's the first teaching that all Buddhisms agree on, that life is dukkha and our experience as human beings is dukkha. <clears throat> then the understanding of dukkha and the reason why we experience the, so much dukkha is because of this, the, the second and the third principles, impermanence and interdependence. 
And what is meant by interdependence also means this lack of anything that exists independently. So the notion in Buddhism, like the Dalai Lama said, you could summarize Buddhism in one word, interdependence. So there's the, and then the fourth principle is what's the, the, the Sanskrit or pa, the Pali word, Nibbana, or in uh, Nirvana in Sanskrit this notion of some kind of freedom or releasement from dukkha, from suffering. And to simplify that aspect of it, um, often people make this sort of simple distinction between pain and suffering. So in a sense, uh, it's more to do in Buddhism with our relationship with, with, with our life, our relationship with all the relationships we're in, um, our relationship to dukkha. Um, our relationship to physical pain and mental pain, our relationship to happiness. Um, and um, now, so they're the sort of four common elements, but you will find that in all the different Buddhism, that there's all the spectrums of Buddhism in Tibetan Buddhism, in Zen Buddhism, in Theravada Buddhism, and so on. So all the different Buddhisms will have different interpretations of those four common elements. And we ourselves will often have different interpretations of those four common elements. So Zen Buddhism shares an understanding of those four common elements. So our guided meditations will reflect those four elements, those four principles. But someone asked me on Sunday, what was it that attracted me to Zen Buddhism? Because I, I did experiment with other Buddhisms and I do like Tibetan Buddhism. And um, one, of the, one of my answers was because I really like the work of Joko Beck and I like to get out of my head and just sit and be quiet. And uh, that was, I, I know, I just you know, couldn't find the answer to life through reading philosophy. So just sitting down, practicing Zazen, I think was a better pathway for me. And, uh, and then from that, from that foundation of Zazen, we try to express it in language. We can't get away from language. We have to talk about it. But I was reflecting on it last night as to another reason why I was attracted to Zen Buddhism. And I think that there is a, quite a difference between the, 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 the Indian Buddhism and especially in the early days, and Chinese and hence Japanese Buddhism. So for example, if I was to try and sort of simplify that, the Indian spiritual culture and tradition often has a quite aversive reaction to the body and to our embodied existence and, and dukkha. And in Theravada Buddhism, the actual definition of nirvana or nibbana was actually getting off the wheel of samsara literally because they have this deep belief which comes from hindu culture in this cycle of births <clears throat> they might call it reincarnation in hinduism because hinduism might be argued they believe in a permanent self but because in the buddhist teachings there's no permanent self because we're all interdependent the Buddhist notion of rebirth was also, though, interpreted to be rebirth into another life and another life and another life until 
somewhere down the track one got enlightened uh, or achieved nirvana and, and got off that cycle. So in some ways, it's a kind of pessimistic take. I mean, again, I'm simplifying things, but like if the ultimate goal of our practice is to stop being reborn, then it's kind of like a rejection of this life in a way. So what I like about the Chinese and Japanese spirituality is that uh, in China, of course, Buddhism was fused with Taoism. And Taoism uses the natural landscape, the sky and the mountains and the rivers. And they were sacred and, and they expressed the mystery of all things. And, and human beings had their place in the environment, but they weren't center stage the mountains and the rivers were center stage. And it was our job to get into in the way, we are already in the way, but we don't realize we're in the way. That is the Tao, the Tao being the way. And so in Chinese and, and, and following Japanese culture and spirituality, there's much more of an acceptance of this, of this world, of this existence. So in some ways, my attraction towards Zen is a kind of aesthetics it's an appreciation that somehow I find in Zen, uh, and I think this should be the same in Chan, in China, but also, so if you look at the, the poetry and the landscape painting in Chinese and Japanese works, there's an aesthetics of impermanence. They find beauty in impermanence. Um, there's, a, there's a word in Japanese, um, there's a, in terms of Japanese aesthetics, there's a lot of different concepts um, but one of them is mono no aware, M O N O N O aware. It's the pathos of things. It's the, the, the you know the notion in which the Japanese people celebrate the cherry blossoms, the 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 the, 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 the cherry blossoms. The blossoms only last a week, and they have a, a celebration of that. And at the time of the season when the cherry blossoms come into bloom and fall. And that's the sense in which um, even though we know we're all gonna die, even though we know our loved ones are gonna die, maybe they'll die before us. It doesn't stop us loving each other and it doesn't stop us loving the, the beauty even though if nature, so nature we see in Chinese and Japanese Zen, the celebration of nature, the natural landscape and the, how the landscape teaches us. And it teaches us impermanence, but it also teaches us beauty. And it also teaches us in, in Japan, like the notion, okay, life is short, therefore appreciate this moment, right? So it's a kind of real saying yes to this life, even though it's impermanent and fleeting. So I think that's another reason that attracted me towards Zen. Okay. So um, I think that's the key also to understanding the different interpretations of what we might be in the, by Nirvana. Um, and we'll, we'll explore that a, a little bit today because um, in some ways it's um, when we're getting, getting out of our egocentric ways or our self-centered ways of positioning ourselves. It's about realizing the wonder and the beauty and uh, seeing how that sense of self-centeredness falls away when we witness that wonder. So that's what I like about Zen. And that's what a lot of the, the art, whether it's landscape art or poetry or music, just tries to capture 
that wondrous moment that reveals that teaching. So the mountains and the rivers are the sutras, the mountains and the rivers are teaching us. Okay, now we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. That was a little introduction. We'll get into the guided meditation now. So please sit comfortably and settle into your posture. So we do talk a lot about the importance of posture. And the notion of posture is basically the back relatively straight, if you can do that. If for some reason, because of uh, difficulties with your back or you can't do that and you need to lie, sit back against the chair, that's fine. Or if you have to lie down, that's fine. But basically we, we look towards some sense of straightness of the spine. The sense in which we're sitting with our, a, that, triang that triangle of the feet flat on the floor, backside on the cushion on the chair, or if you're sitting on a, on a mat on the floor, you've got your knees on the floor forming the triangle. In Zen, traditionally, the hands are positioned in what's called a mudra, which is like that, with the thumbs touching each other. But when I'm sitting on a chair, I find it easier to place my hands on my lap. Now, that's just a personal preference, but um, again, we don't, we don't get um, hung up on these things. Sit in whatever position is, is, is best for you, but we want the posture to also maintain relative stillness. So you sit in the, in the posture which best supports that relative stillness and comfort so you can relax. So relaxation with alertness is the key. So once you've found your seat, once you've found your posture, and that might only take a few seconds, or sometimes people like to sway a little bit too, either backwards and forwards or to the side to get that centering. So a sense of centering in the posture. Then once you've got your posture, usually we just then tune into the breath. And um, usually Buddhism 101, we're taught to follow the breath. And uh, it's something which stays, once you've practiced following the breath in the, in the early stages of practice, it's something which stays with you for the rest of your life. The wonderful thing about the breath is because it's always present and it's always changing and moving, it's always available. So um, it's like your constant companion. Uh, so I always recommend when, if, if, you're, if you're fairly new to meditation, then following the breath is a great place to start. And, um, and following the breath is, is a version of what we call um, um, meditating on an object. Some people like to count the breath. And that's another variation of meditating on an object. Other people just follow the breath. And as the mind wanders away, the training is to, you know, just bring it back to the breath. And the mind wanders away on another thought about the future or the past, and you just bring the mind back. So yeah. Mindfulness, in a way, is this notion of remembering to return. Um, so awareness of the breath, simply awareness of the breath, awareness. Our mindfulness reminds us to be aware. And so then it brings us back to the breath.
I was talking about um, natural landscape and um, and sometimes I mentioned on Sunday the, 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 the teachings of impermanence and interdependence are often summarized in one word called emptiness. And we'll be, we'll be studying the meaning of emptiness as it's expressed in the Heart Sutra later this year. But <clears throat> often <clears throat> when I look at the, when, it's a, when, it's a, when there are no clouds in the sky, and we get that often in Australia, we're very lucky, a blue expanse of the sky and then the earth and what i'm going to call the guided meditation today is the wonder of earth and sky and in many ways i see the earth as representing form and the sky as representing emptiness So if you just hold that image, the earth is like all different colors. There's lots of greens, but there's all different other kinds of colors. There's all different kinds of, you know, you walk along a beach and there's all these different pebbles, all little different shapes and sizes and colors. The earth is just infinite variety of myriad things. And when we see them, uh, sh it's radiant, it's shining. And so is the sky. The earth is radiant and shining because the sky is radiant and shining. It's always nice to bring these abstract concepts which we get in Indian Buddhism, right? Because Indian Buddhism is very conceptual, philosophical, and abstract. Taoism is very much down to earth and, and uses these symbols, analogies, representations from nature to teach. So if you're wanting to understand this notion of emptiness and form, think of the sky and the earth. The word for the sky in apparently in Sanskrit, shunyata, means sky, means emptiness. And you see, when you look into the blue sky, there's a sense of boundlessness stretching out into infinity. And the earth is more bounded, rounded. But what the teaching is in Buddhism is that the earth is the sky. Emptiness and form are identical. There is really no independently solid existing thing on the earth. It's all interdependence all the way down. It's emptiness all the way down. So just coming back to the breath. When we come back to the breath, it's like coming back to the earth. When we come back to the posture, it's about coming back to the earth, the sense of the groundedness, solidity, stability. Uh, object meditation stabilizes us. 
we have very we, we're all we all have different minds some minds are more like you know stampeding elephants and others are a bit quieter but we have to train the mind through this kind of focusing on following the breath called calm abiding calming us down calming the mind down Now, the other polarity of meditation is when we move from focusing on the object, on the earth, to moving to the sky. You might call it sky mind meditation. And so, in the, rather than abiding and focusing on an object calmly, we just practice non-abiding in the sky. It's kind of like um, we just let our attention rest in the sky, our open, clear, natural, pristine awareness. And we rest in the emptiness. And as we're resting in the emptiness, you see everything coming from emptiness into form and passing back into emptiness. Or another word, a, a, synonym, a, synonym, a similar word to emptiness is absence. From absence into presence, and from presence back into absence. Simply seeing the singing bell rings, it rises in frequency and then moves into back into absence, back into emptiness. Sounds of the old sounds are the same. But notice the same thing with sensations, they constantly like little clusters of stars flickering and changing all the time, even pain. If you were on a long retreat and you're able to gather enough mindfulness together, you can't really do it just like without a lot of um, preparation. But sometimes really intense pain can actually be, you can actually, it can, it can break up in, and, and change totally from pain into pleasure. It's amazing. But often we don't sit long enough to experience that. But we can experience just the changing sensations in ordinary everyday life all the time, just like our breath is changing. Thoughts are the same, like the thoughts are the same as sound. They're coming, they rise up from nowhere and they go back into nowhere. Everything is empty. There is nothing that inherently exists. So they're the two basic kinds of Buddhist meditation, grounding yourself in an object, and that's a really nice way to start a meditation practice. You might go the whole meditation practice using that, and you might use that in your everyday life, even for two minutes. If you're having a rough time, just stop. Pay attention, listen, feel the breath. Just get connected again. Calm down. So focusing on an object is a really, really helpful practice, and we all need to learn that one. And, and not just learn it, but 
get it embedded in your procedural memory so you don't even have to think about it. That's why it's so important to practice every day. It's all about creating those really good habits so that we start to come back to our breath without even thinking about it. And then play with the open mind, the open sky meditation. Just allowing yourself to have that sense of resting in the sky. Everything, you know, the thoughts are like birds coming in and out of the sky. There's feelings like clouds, they're constantly changing. But the sky is also steady, the blue sky is always present. And then there's this notion in, in, um, in Zen Buddhism called um, Dharma Gates. Just have a little reading from a Zen teacher called Melissa Myozen Blacker, who teaches in um, New York State, I think. And um, this is, uh, I'm just going to read a couple of, a few, two or three paragraphs from a short talk that she gave called, let me know when you see the iguana. You know the feeling. You've lost something and suddenly you realize it's been there right in front of you the whole time. Those missing keys or that misplaced hat were, as they say, hiding in plain sight. They seem to be invisible and unrecoverable, yet suddenly, there they are. It's clear to you they were never lost at all. Once I was on a riverboat tour in the Costa Rican rainforest when our guide suddenly stopped the boat. He asked everyone to sit still, breathe quietly, and let our eyes rest on the tree that was right in front of us. The guide had a one-hour trust with his competence and good humor, so everyone in the boat obeyed him. He said to us, let me know when you see the iguana. Now, <clears throat> it was clear to me and every other tourist on the boat that there was no iguana in that tree. It was just a tree with a brown trunk and green leaves. Sitting still, breathing, looking, I appreciated the tree very much. It was a beautiful tree in a lovely place. The water lapped at the boat and I felt very peaceful. After all, he had just given us meditation instructions, and I love to meditate, but there was no iguana in that tree. And then there was. All over the boat, people started exclaiming, I see it, I see it. It had always been there, but before we saw it, we didn't know we were seeing it. 
The practice of waking up in every moment is a bit like spotting iguanas. After every meditation practice, I recite the four Bodhisattva vows, a Zen chant that contains the line, Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. This vow reminds me to wake up to the teachings that are offered by the world every moment. Even when I can't see the iguana, I vow to keep looking for it. Naturally, a few questions may occur to you concerning this vow. First of all, what are these Dharma gates? If they're so boundless, does that mean that they are everywhere? If that's true, why don't I see them? And what's all this talk about entering them? So we also recite the, the four vows, Bodhisattva vows. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The gate in Zen is a very, very core symbol. One of the most famous koan collections is called the gateless gate. Although we often experience ourselves as being outside the gate, being outside the gate is being centered in the self-centered dream. It's being experiencing ourselves as subject-object duality. Me in here and a you out there. A me in here and the world out there. So entering the Dharma gate is seeing that that subject-object illusion is an upside-down way of seeing reality. That we're never outside the way. We're always walking the way, even though we don't see it. There's a Japanese word called Kam, which is often yelled out by the Zen master, which means gate. That's another way of entering the gate. Or I could go You might say to me, Andrew, what's Buddha? And I might go, in the old days, they might have slapped you on the face. We don't do that anymore. So when we give ourselves this opportunity to practice like this and support each other in practicing like this, we're opening ourselves to entering the gate moment by moment. One of our hopes in providing these guided meditations is to facilitate that experience of entering the gate, realizing that the wonder that's always been here, whether it be seeing the iguana whether it be just stopping and noticing what's right in front of your nose, could be a teacup, could be the smell of the tea. In fact, a tea ceremony in Zen Buddhism is an aesthetic ritual. 
Soto Zen is full of this ritualization of everyday life. We're not going to go off to a monastery, but we can bring that sense of aesthetics into our everyday life. It's just a matter of our attitude, appreciating each moment, each moment that we're in relationship with the teacup, the teapot, the smell of the tea, the tasting of the tea. As you know, Zen is all about tasting. It's not about talking about the tea. It's about tasting the tea. Another word for interdependence is co-arising, dependent origination. Take the hand into being. How the sounds constitute silence and the silence constitutes the sounds. How the stillness constitutes motion and motion constitutes stillness. From darkness we get light and from light we get darkness. Darkness is then is the mystery. It's the emptiness. It's the potentiality, the absence. Light is the form of 10,000 things, crystal clear. Darkness is light and light is darkness. There's another Japanese aesthetic word called Yugen, not quite sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's spelled Y-U-G-E-N, the mysterious grace. It's when you see in Chinese and Japanese landscape paintings, 
you see the mist-covered mountain and the emptiness, you see the space left in the painting. There's always that sense of the mystery in everyday life, symbolized by the, the mist, the cloud-hidden mountain in this space. Everything is ephemeral. The deep, dark enigma, the mother of all things, Taoism. We don't have to transcend this world to appreciate the mystery. The mystery is right here in front of our eyes. the sea and the horizon. The mountains and rivers. Even the mystery of abandoned shacks in the forest. Or on the country road. The beauty of the pebble on the beach. Let's not lose sense of this mystery of all things, the mystery of our loved ones, our partners, children, parents, family, friends. Each one of us, so totally unique, like each little pebble on the beach is totally unique, form in its infinite variety and sky in its infinite boundlessness, joining us all together in this dance of joy, which we call life, which doesn't last very long. just sit in silence for a couple more minutes and then we'll do the practice principles. May you experience many moments of wonder today.
feel free to recite the principles out loud as long as you keep your mic um, muted. Caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. <laughs>